You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Begin today by reading our text, which comes from Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you as living and active. Lord, thank you that it is speaking to us today. And Lord, we want to hear it. We want to hear the message. We want to apply it to our lives. We want to live it out. And Lord, we want the gospel to be clear in our minds and to sink down deep into our hearts and change the way that we live in every area of our lives. So Lord, would you do that work this morning, we ask, as we read and study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Any of you guys watching the World Cup? I'm a big World Cup fan. I love the drama of the World Cup. Just yesterday, Croatia, my favorite team, Croatia beat Russia to advance to the quarterfinals or semifinals. And on Friday, of course, Belgium, small country, beat Brazil, who is supposedly the best team in the world. So I love all the drama that goes into the World Cup. It's great. But you know, I always think about this. Is it really fair to say, right, that Croatia beat Russia? or that Belgium beat Brazil. Because, I mean, it's not like the entire country of Belgium was playing soccer against the entire country of Brazil. Like, there are only 23 guys on each team. But there are 200 million people who live in Brazil. So if it was just a couple guys from Belgium who beat a couple guys from Brazil, then why do we say that the whole country of Belgium beat the whole country of Brazil? Or or take the United States, for example. This year was the first time in 30 years that the United States States didn't qualify for the World Cup. And the reason we didn't qualify is because last year we lost to Trinidad and Tobago, which is like a country of one million people. We lost to Trinidad and Tobago. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't get a chance to play in that game. Like, I didn't, they didn't even uh, call me. They didn't ask. And uh, so I feel maybe it's not really fair to say that the entire United States got disqualified from the World Cup because there are like 325 million of us who didn't get asked to play in that game. There are only 23 people playing with an American jersey. And so, I mean, is it really fair that we didn't get a chance to step on the field and, and face off against Trinidad and Tobago? Did they really, is that really legitimate? Did they really beat us as a country? 
Or think about this, is it really fair to say that one country defeated another country or disqualified another country in one of these competitions? I'm going to tell you this. Actually, it is. It is. And here's why. Because when it comes to these competitions, each country puts forth their very best players. And uh, there's a reason I didn't make the team, and it's because it turns out there are other people who are better at soccer than I am. I'm not the best soccer player in the country, and there are other people who together, they stand a better chance of winning than I do, and that's why I'm not on the team. So our national team, they're our representatives. They're the best that we've got. They're our champions. If they can't do it, then we can't do it. Let's take weightlifting, for example. You ever watch weightlifting in the Olympics? I like, I like that one too, okay? So if our country sends a weightlifting team, like a powerlifting team, to the Olympics, like these are people of incredible strength. They've dedicated their lives to learning how to weightlift and do these things. If they go to the Olympics and they get beaten by the Germans, like how many of us are going to say, well, that doesn't really count. Like the Germans didn't really beat us because... I didn't get a chance to participate. They didn't beat me, so they didn't beat us. Well, that would be absurd because if we send our champions, if we send our very best and they're defeated, then we're all defeated because they were our best. Right? And so you might ask, okay, interesting thoughts. What does this have to do with Jesus? I'm going to give you the answer that I love to give. It's a pastor answer. It has everything to do with Jesus, okay? What does it have to do with Jesus? Everything. That's the answer. Let me explain this to you. Today, as we come to chapter 5, as we've been traveling through the book of Romans, that's what we've been doing, going section by section, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this book, Paul the Apostle has been explaining to us here in Romans how the gospel works. Now, maybe some of you are those kind of people. You like to know how things work. Then Romans is the book for you. And, and here in Romans, the Apostle Paul, he's taking the time to answer a lot of the questions that people have about Christianity. So if you're a person who says, you know, there are just a lot of things that I wonder. I have a lot of unanswered questions about Christianity. Then again, Romans is the book for you. So here's the thing. Not only does he want us to understand what the gospel is, that's what we've been talking about, the good news that because of what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection, we can be forgiven, we can be made right with God, and rather than judgment, we can receive eternal life. That's what the gospel is, but how does the gospel work? Like, how does that actually happen? How does that work practically? And here in Romans, Paul is taking us into the nuts and bolts of the gospel and how it works. And these are things which are taught throughout the Bible. They're taught in the Old Testament. Jesus taught these same things. They're pointed to and alluded to. But here in, in Romans, what Paul's doing is he's taking all these different strands and he's weaving them together. He's taking all the pieces like a puzzle and putting them together for us so that we can see the whole picture in one place. And here's, here's just a little outline of where we've come so far and where we're at. In chapters one through three, he has been, he talked about why we need the gospel, why we need to be saved. And the reason is because we're all unrighteous and God's judgment is coming upon all unrighteousness. And then in the second half of chapter three and then into chapter four, he told us how we are saved. And the way that we are saved is we are justified. We are made right with God, not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did for us. And we receive that by faith. That's how we are saved. And now here in chapter 5, he's talking to us about why we can be sure 
that Jesus can actually save us. Why we can be sure that what Jesus did is actually able to save us. Now in our section today, we're actually going to be addressing uh, many of the answers to common questions that people have about Christianity and the gospel. This is definitely a much more theologically minded section we're looking at, or sermon we're looking at, but I know that you guys, that's what you're here for, right? You want to know what the Bible teaches. That's why we're here. We're studying the Bible. And so um, let's dive right into this. One of the questions that many people ask that's addressed in this section is this. How can it be that one man's actions are able to save all people? How can it be that one man's actions, as noble as they were, as great as they were, they were the actions of one man at one time in one place in history? How is that able to save me and change my life here and now today? In our section last week, what we saw is that the hope of the world, the hope for you and me, is that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death, and he rose from the grave, conquering over sin and death for us. That's the good news of the gospel. But the question that many people ask, and maybe you've wondered about it yourself as well, the question is, well, that was one guy 2,000 years ago. I mean, how can I know that that is able to save me here and now? I mean, think about it. You and me, we've committed thousands, probably millions actually, of sins throughout our lifetime. Now, how do the events that took place 2,000 years ago surrounding one man in a faraway country, how are they able to save us here and now? How are they able to atone for our sins and make a difference in our lives? How does that make any sense at all? Right, because we're a lot of people. He's just one person. Now, that question is actually answered here in this text. The thesis statement for this section is found in verse 18. Verse 18, which says this, Therefore, as one man, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So there's the one and the all. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So when it comes down to this basic question of what exactly was it that Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection? Was he just a good person who lived a good life and he taught us to do the same? Was his death just a noble act of sacrifice for the sake of humanity and to really, you know, die as a martyr for the cause of improving humanity and making people learn to be better people? Or did Jesus actually accomplish something in his life and death and resurrection that no one else could have possibly accomplished except for the sinless Son of God? Well, in order to understand what Jesus did and how significant it is, what we need to do is we need to put it in contrast with the actions of another man, right? And that's what he does here in this section. That man's name is Adam. It says in verse 12, our first verse, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who is that man? The man he's talking about is Adam, as in Adam and Eve, as in the very first human beings who ever lived. Now, we read about Adam in the very first three chapters chapters of the Bible, right? It describes for us how God created the world, this beautiful masterpiece that he created in love with great care, and he looked upon all that he made, and he said, it is good. And then, as the crown jewel, the crowning achievement of all of creation, he created a man and a woman, and he looked on them, and he said, it is very good. In other words, this was the, 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 uh, the crown jewel of all of creation, the man and the woman, and he put them in a garden paradise that he had created just for them, the perfect scenario, the perfect situation. 
And he gave them free reign to do whatever they wanted to do with just one restriction. He told them, eat from any of the trees that you want in this garden. They'll all be good. You'll love them. You'll like it. It's going to be great. Eat from all the trees you want, except for this one. And here's why. He said, here's why you are forbidden to eat from this tree. Because if you eat from this tree, you will die. Now, that seems like a pretty reasonable rule or a pretty, pretty reasonable restriction, like pretty fair, right? Like if I tell my kids, hey, kids, don't drink this antifreeze because it will kill you. Like that's just a pretty nice thing. I mean, that's not that bad of me to say that, right? I'm not being like a control freak. Don't drink the antifreeze because it'll kill you. No, I'm saying that because I love them, right? If I tell my kids, hey, don't climb power lines and touch power transformers. I'm not saying that because I'm a control freak. I'm saying that because I love my kids and that thing will kill them. And anybody who's a parent understands that. that. That's something we need to understand. And I really want you to understand this. All of God's commandments are for our benefit. Do you know that? All of God's commandments are for our benefit. They are for our good because he loves us. Now, one of the questions that people always ask, inevitably, is, well, if God knew that this tree could kill them, then why did he put it there in the first place? I mean, why do that? Why, why, why would God put something there and tell them not to touch it? And the answer is this, because by doing that, God introduced an essential element into their relationship, and that was the element of trust and faith. Element of trust and faith. Because see, with that tree there, they would now have to trust God. They would now have to have faith in God's character. And there's a question now, will they believe what God says is true? Will they believe in God's character that he truly has their best interest in mind, that he's not lying to them, that he's telling them the truth? Or will they believe that God is somehow nefarious or that God is somehow not trustworthy or that he doesn't want the best for them or that maybe he's lying to them about what he said? The tree introduced this essential element into the relationship of faith and trust. And you might already know what happened. Here's what happened in case you don't. Rather than trusting God, rather than obeying God, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Rather than acting in faith, they disobeyed and they ate the forbidden fruit. They believed the lie of the serpent, which was what? What was the lie of the serpent that they believed? It was that God is not telling you the truth, that what God says is not actually true, and that God is trying to withhold pleasure from you. And that's why he gives you rules, that he's trying to withhold. In other words, God's a cosmic killjoy who's up there trying to make sure that nobody has any fun down here. And let me tell you this, aren't those the exact same lies that we tend to believe about God as well? Those are the same lies that we tend to believe about God. Well, that what he says isn't actually true and that he doesn't really have our best interest in mind, that, that what he says isn't truly what's best for us. But let's move on. God had given Adam a warning at that time. He said, if you eat from that tree, you will die. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. In the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, the principle of sin and the principle of death entered into the world. And the principle of death has reigned over this earth ever since. That's what verse 12 is saying when it says, it goes on to say this. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. It's a very important biblical 
principle that we need to establish in our minds is this. Death is the result of sin. Death is the result of sin. Every grave that you see is evidence of the spread of sin and the reign of death ever since the time of Adam. I don't know if you've driven down Main Street. There's a, there's a um, cemetery there at like 11th and Main Street. I don't know. It's a pretty busy place. People are dying to get in there, right? But P see, that's the thing about sin is that sin has been reigning ever since Adam. That wasn't in the notes, guys. That's just free form. That's just me going for it, all right? <laughs> The reason we're subject to death is because the principle of sin is at work in this world. Death is the result of sin. If it were not for sin, we would not be subject to death. But then he says at the end of verse 12, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. All men sinned. Now because death and sin are connected, we know that all men and women are sinners. How do we know that all men and women are sinners? Because we are subject to death. Now, now here's why that's interesting. Notice again at the, at the phrase at the end of verse 12, because all sinned. Now, last week I told you a story about how good grammar saved my life, really. It got me married. So grammar's important. I'm going to bring out some grammar stuff right now for you. This is what tense. It's not the past perfect tense, right, which is the have, right? Like all people have sinned. That's called the past perfect or present perfect. Actually, I don't know. You, present perfect? All right. I guess I'm not as good as I used to be. So then the, uh, but what tense is this in? This is in the simple past tense, which means something happened at one time, and this is referring back to it. In the Greek, this is, there's a term for this tense. It's called the aorist tense. It means something happened in the past, and this is referring to that thing. In other words, here's my point. Notice it doesn't say all people have sinned. That's why death is in all people. No, it says all people sinned at one time in the past. What is it saying? It's saying it very clearly. And again, in the original text, it's, it's very clear. What it's saying is this. When Adam sinned, that counted for all of us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam sinned, all of us who would one day come after him, which is everybody, we became sinners in Adam's sin. And you might say, I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. Well, let's talk about it some more because th this is what it's teaching. Okay, now this is called the doctrine of original sin. If you've heard that word, this is what it's about. Doctrine of original sin. Here's what it means. It means that even before you were born, from the time you were in your mother's womb, you were already infected with this disease called sin. Before you ever had the chance to consciously do something wrong, you were already a sinner. Because all sinned in Adam. When did we sin? We sinned when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, all of his descendants after him became sinners. Now somebody might say, hang on a second. That doesn't make any sense. I didn't sin when Adam sinned. Adam sinned when Adam sinned. If I'm a sinner, it's because I sinned, not because somebody else sinned. You can't put his actions on me. What he did is his problem. It's not my problem. Let me put it to you this way. You and I were in Adam when he sinned. You see, each and every one of us are descended from Adam. The, the genetic makeup of Adam has come down to all of us. And just a, a side note right now. Even those who believe in, in evolution will tell you this, that all human beings alive today came from one original man and one original woman. So all of us come down. Science testifies to the fact that all human beings alive today come from one original couple. And so when the Bible talks about Adam, it's not 
talking about an allegory, right? This isn't an allegorical story to teach us a lesson. This isn't like Aesop's fables. This is talking about a real person who committed a real sin that has real repercussions that affect us even to this day. And the proof of that, verse 13 and 14, is that all of us are subject to death. Look at what verse 13 and 14 says. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Let me explain this. What he's saying is, because we know that death is the result of sin, what that tells us is that even before the law of God was given, sin was already in the world. Why? Because of Adam. We were already sinners, and we know that because we died even before the law of God was given. Now, let me give you an example. One time, I was, I was like 18, and a friend of mine, we just got out of high school. We went on this road trip, and we were coming back from the road trip. This friend of mine, he had a nice car, and he was driving. I was sitting in the passenger seat. We were on the highway, and uh, I was kind of drowsing off, and the last thing I remember him saying before I fell asleep was, bro, I'm going 120 miles an hour, and then I guess I fell asleep because the next thing I remember is my friend saying to me, bro, wake up. I'm getting pulled over. And he got a huge ticket. Of course he did. Why? Because he was going way over the speed limit, like way over. Now, but check this out. Another time I went to Germany and we had a car. Somebody lent us their car and we had to travel a couple hours. So we got to drive on the Autobahn and guess how fast I went. I went 190 kilometers an hour, which is 120 miles per hour. And guess what? I didn't get pulled over. In fact, I didn't even worry about getting pulled over. You know why? Because there is no speed limit on the Autobahn. In other words, there is no law, so I'm not breaking the law. How does that apply? That's exactly what's going on here in verses 13 and 14. He's saying God's law, right, his list of standards of right and wrong, it was not given until the time of Moses. So you got a bunch of people who lived before Moses was born, before Moses gave the law, or God gave the law to the people through Moses. So if you say what makes a person a sinner is that they break the law of God, well then what about the people who lived before the law of God? They didn't break the law of God because there was no law yet for them to break. There were no Ten Commandments. There were no other laws. And so, but here's the deal. Those people also died. So how does that work? Well, here's what it tells us. Those people were also sinners, but how did they become sinners if they didn't break the law? Here's how. They sinned in Adam. They sinned in Adam. See, the proof that you are under the power of sin is that you are subject to death. So how did those people who lived before the law was given, how did they become sinners? They sinned like all of us. They became sinners in Adam. In other words, the fact that death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law was given is proof of the fact that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In other words, we don't just become sinners by breaking the law. We, in fact, are sinners before we ever make a single conscious choice of our own. It isn't that you were born sinless and then you became a sinner at two years old when you hit that little girl over the head with the shovel in the sandbox. Now, if that's what it took to become a sinner, guess what? We would all still be sinners, okay? So it, it, we're all in the same boat. Now, say, well, then who cares? 
I'm going to show you why it matters in just a second. Even in your mother's womb, this is what it's saying. You were already a sinner because of Adam and what he did. And you know that David, the psalm writer, he already understood that. Check this out. Psalm 51. Here's what David says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that his mother was involved in some kind of adulterous affair or immoral relationship. We know from history she was not. What he's acknowledging is that he was a sinner even from conception. It was his status. It was his nature from the time he was conceived. And it wasn't because he, he just had a really bad attitude when he was in the womb, right? Like he had a kind of a grimace on his face and he kind of kicked his mom for fun, right? No, he was a sinner by nature because he is a son of Adam, a son of Adam, right? And so we see the effects of this as we raise our kids, don't we? Like, how many of us need to teach our kids to be selfish? Of course not. We have to teach them the opposite of that. It's, it comes very natural to them to be selfish. And it brings up a very important question. This is kind of an aside, but it's an important question that people always ask when it comes to this topic. If babies are born sinners, then does that mean that if a baby dies in infancy uh, or as a small child, does that mean that they go to hell? And the answer is no, not necessarily at all. Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 tells us that the children of believing parents are sanctified by the presence of a believing parent. That's the idea of covenant and family. Uh, furthermore, we read in 2 Samuel about King David, that there was a time when he experienced the painful, tragic loss of a, a child in infancy. And yet he took comfort and he was encouraged by the assurance that he had that he would be reunited with his child in heaven. He said, my son will not come back to me, but I will go to him. And so I do believe that uh, babies and young children who die, or let's say people with cognitive uh, disabilities or mental disabilities, they, who never reach the point where they are able to understand the gospel or put their faith in Jesus, I believe that God shows them mercy. But here's what I want you to understand in light of this passage. If they are taken to heaven, it's not uh, because they were sinless and didn't need salvation. It was because of God's mercy, because he's a merciful God. The Bible tells us here that every human being descended from Adam is a sinner by nature, and that's why we're subject to death. So this is called, there's a name for this, it's called federal headship, or sometimes it's called federal theology or federal headship. Just like we have a federal government in which we have representatives, and they make decisions, and we all suffer the consequences of those decisions, right? Like we don't always like their decisions, but they affect us nevertheless. They are our representatives. And in the same way, Adam functioned as our federal head, our representative. And because of that, what he did affected us. Now, we have an example of this in the Old Testament. See, back in ancient times, one of the ways that they would wage war was through something called representative warfare. And the reason they did that was because hand-to-hand -hand combat was really uh, violent and really bloody and just, you know, people getting, if you didn't die, you're getting maimed. Just a ton of bloodshed, hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was so terrible and gruesome that what they did is that sometimes they would resolve battles or conflicts through this thing called representative warfare. And what they would do is that each side would choose one warrior to represent their side. And then the two warriors would face off. And that warrior was called a champion. Now, the two champions would come out and they would fight each other one-on-one. -on -one, and which, which, whichever one was victorious, their side, their army, would be counted as having won the battle and the other side would be counted as having lost the battle. Now, there's an example of this in the Bible, in the story of David and Goliath. 
1 Samuel 17, we read that the Israelites were at war with the Philistines. And at one point, they met in this place called the Valley of Elah. It's a big flat place with hills on either side. One army's camped on the one hill. The other army's camped on the other hill. It's going to be disastrous if either of them tries to rush the hill that the other one's on. They're going to get slaughtered. And so they're at this standoff. Nobody wants to make the first move. And so the Philistines come out, and they suggest, why don't we resolve this through representative warfare, representative combat. And, and that's what happens there. It says in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines sent out their champion. It actually uses that word there in the Bible, their champion, a man named Goliath of Gath. He goes out there, and he goes out, and he tells the Israelites to send down who? Their champion. Here's what he says, 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 and 9. He says, choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail and I kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. So here's the idea. Representative warfare, federal headship, a champion fighting another champion as representatives. Now, Adam was our representative, our champion, our warrior, our federal head. And so when he fell, we fell. When he lost, we all lost. When he sinned, we all sinned. Now maybe you say, hey, look, I understand what you're saying, but I just don't like it, right? Because uh, it's incredibly unfair. Okay, even if this was the way that God did it, I don't, maybe you say, I don't like it. It just doesn't seem fair because I didn't choose Adam as my representative. I didn't vote for him. Why should I have to suffer as a result of his failure? I should be treated as an individual. That's our American mentality. I should be treated as an individual. I should be allowed to stand on my own two feet. I should be given a chance to represent myself. This isn't fair. Adam bombed and we suffer the fallout, right? Maybe if I, if I had been given the chance, I would have done better. See, we live in this very individualistic society, probably the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world. And so we have this tendency to have a hard time with this kind of stuff. We tend to believe that we should be treated as individuals and that no one can represent us except for us ourselves. Let me tell you two things if you're struggling with this idea. Number one, I do not think that you would have done better than Adam. In fact, I think I could go on record and say, I guarantee you wouldn't have done better than Adam. Because here's the thing. Remember all that talk a, little, a few minutes ago about the World Cup, about the weightlifting team, uh, you know, in the Olympics? How does that apply at all? Here's how it applies. Adam was our champion. In other words, he was created specially by God. He was, you know, number one out of the factory of people, right? The best product before the gene pool got all messed up. He's the best. God made him specially for us to be our representative. In other words, if he couldn't make it, then we're not going to be able to make it. If he failed, then you can be sure that we would do the same. Secondly, and this is more important, before you get too upset about federal headship and all this stuff, you need to understand that if you throw this out, you're throwing out the very feet that you stand on. You're cutting off the branch that you stand on. You are getting rid of the foundation of the gospel. Federal headship is the foundation of the gospel, and it is actually really, really great news. It's the entire basis of the gospel and how one man can save all people. Let me explain that to you. Let's move on to our next point. Why is federal headship great news? Here's why. Because if Adam's sin is our sin, here's what that means. It means that what if there's somebody else who came along? A new Adam, we might call him. A second Adam, maybe we would call him, who was perfectly obedient to God. And then just as Adam's sin was our sin, in the same way, the new Adam's obedience could be our obedience. 
See, look at what it says in verse 14. Adam, this is the very end of verse 14, Adam, who was a type or a pattern of the one who was to come. In other words, if God were to deal with us individually rather than corporately, that would actually be a tragedy. And here's why. If God dealt with us on all of our sins individually, it would not have been possible for one man, Jesus, to save us all. In order for Jesus to save all of us, the only way that could work for one man to save us is for him to be our champion, our federal head, our representative. Now think back to that story of David and Goliath. Here's what happened. The two champions meet in the valley of Elah. David representing Israel. Goliath representing the Philistines. David puts us sling in his rock and hurls it at Goliath. Goliath said, what am I, a dog that you come at me with rocks and sticks? What Goliath didn't realize is that David had come to a knife fight with a gun, right? And so David puts this thing in his sling. He hurls this rock, hits Goliath right in the middle of the forehead. Goliath falls down. And then what does David do? He goes and he takes Goliath's own sword because he didn't have his own. He takes Goliath's own sword and the coup de grace, he cuts off his head. And because David was victorious, all of Israel was victorious. Even though no one else lifted a single finger, they were victorious. David's victory was their victory. Because David won, they won. Because David was their representative and their champion. And that is the picture of the gospel. That is the picture of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus, the son of David, the one who had David's own blood flowing through his veins, he came as our representative, as our champion, to fight a greater enemy, an enemy that we could never stand a chance against on our own, and he was victorious. You and me, we didn't even lift a finger. We didn't contribute anything. Jesus did it all. And because of his victory, we can be victorious. Because of his victory, we can be free. That is the message of the gospel. Federal headship is the foundation of the gospel. The last thing you should ever want is to stand on your own two feet. No, see, not only would you fail like Adam failed, but you, you would not be in the place of having the new Adam, Jesus Christ, as your champion to fight for you on your behalf and to give you his righteousness as a gift. Look what it says, verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In other words, both what Adam did and what Jesus did, they both had repercussions for all the human race. But whereas Adam's death brought sin and condemnation to all people, Jesus brings grace and life and makes it available to the whole world. Look at verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In Adam we were condemned. In Jesus we can be justified. Do you see it was the genius of God. It was the wisdom of God. It was the love and mercy of God that he dealt with us in this federal way. Because by dealing with us in this way of federal headship, by putting us under Adam as our representative, God was preparing the way for Jesus to come, the new Adam, our new representative, our new champion, where Adam failed, Jesus would succeed. And it is this way that the life and death and the resurrection of one man at one time, 2,000 years ago, is able to save people here and now and change your life forever. Verse 17, I love this verse. Check it out. For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. They say there are two things that are guaranteed in life, two things that are certain, death and taxes. I can't help you with the taxes part, but 
Let's talk about the death, okay? Statistics aren't good, right? Like 10 out of 10 people die. I'm not great at math, but that's somewhere around 100%. Now, death is reigning here on earth, and it has been for a very long time. We sometimes call this the land of the living. It'd probably be better to call it the land of the dying, because from the moment a child is born, they're on the clock, and you don't know when death is going to come, but it will come one day. And you can eat a lot of kale, and you can use the elliptical every day, and you can postpone it, but you can't avoid it. It's going to come. Death reigns here on earth. But this is the good news. Even though Adam started a reign of sin and death, Jesus initiated a reign of righteousness and life. And this is the part I love. It says, if Adam did that and brought the reign of death, how much more does Jesus come and bring a reign of life? In other words, the two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. I can't help you with the taxes, but I can tell you this. There is actually something that is even more certain than death. That's what he's saying here. Much more certain than death is this, that if you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved because of what he did. You will receive that grace and that salvation so much more than the death that came in. How can you have that assurance for yourself? That brings us to our final question, and it'll be brief. It's the question which this text forces us to ask ourselves in light of everything we have just read, and that's this question. Who is your champion? Who is your champion today? Verse 19 says this, as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In order for this assurance to be yours, Jesus has to be your champion. Verse 17 says this, you must receive this grace. You must receive this gift that he offers you in Jesus. For all of us, right, our default setting the way that we're, we come into this world and the way that we live, unless something changes, is that Adam is our champion. He's our champion. But as we've seen, that's only gotten us death and sin and condemnation, nothing good. But there are some of you, maybe you're trying to be your own champion. Maybe you're trying to prove yourself, justify yourself. You're trying to stand on your own two feet before God. Well, what we've seen today is that that ship has already sailed, right? Like that's not even, that is, a, that is an endeavor in failure, Here's the good news. If you look to Jesus, if you look to him and what he did, and you make him your champion, you put all your trust and all your hope and all your confidence in him, not in yourself, but in him. If you trust not in yourself, but you trust in him, if you look not to yourself, but you look to him, you will be saved because of what he did. The battle's already been fought. The war has already been won. So I want you to do this today. Whether you've done it before or whether this is the first time, I want you to put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, and in his resurrection from the dead. You can have the assurance that is even more certain than death, the assurance of salvation and everlasting life in Jesus. Amen? Please stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this grand assurance that is ours in you. Thank you, Lord, that in your life, Lord, you lived the sinless life. You lived the life that we should have lived. In your death, you took our place. You died the death that we should have died. Lord, you won the battle. You are the victor. You are the champion. We thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. And, and today we receive it. We receive what you've done for us. No longer do we trust in ourselves. No longer do we believe in ourselves. No longer do we hope in ourselves. But we turn our eyes to you. You are our hope and our champion. Thank you, Lord, for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.